Marcus. Well, hey, welcome to Grace Community Church. It's good to see you. Today, we're going to conclude our series in parenting. Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Hey, by the way, thanks for joining us for Family Fest on Friday night. Man, we had a good time. Thank you for coming. It was a great time together, and I'm glad that you were a part of it as we launch into another ministry year together in fellowship and in unity. That was our theme at our Family Fest was fellowship and the unity that comes from that fellowship. And the reason for that is because next Sunday I am beginning our summer study of the book of 1 John. 1 John is a small little short book in the back of the New Testament. Don't worry, my sermons won't be short. I know, that, I know you're worried about that. My sermons won't be short, but it's a small little short book in the back of the New Testament that it's all about fellowship. It's, it's all about fellowship first with God through Jesus Christ, and then because we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, then we can have fellowship with each other. And the book talks about that fellowship. It talks about how to know who a Christian should fellowship with and who a Christian should not fellowship with. So come next week, and we're going to start our summer study in the book of 1 John. Today, we're going to conclude our series today in parenting. So far, we've covered lots of different types of parenting. We've covered naive parenting in Jehoshaphat. We've covered perfect parenting in Josiah. And his kids didn't even turn out perfect, so relax. You don't have to be a perfect parent. We've covered selfish parenting with Isaac and Rebecca and them using their children as pawns to get done what they want to get done in the family. And unfortunately, there are lots of families like that today. Maybe you have grown up in one of those. Just like Jacob, Jacob was the next cautionary tale, and he parented just the way his parents did. That was his parenting style. I'm just going to do it the way that my parents did it. He wasn't interested in learning his, his kids, learning what drives God had placed in his children and fanned the flames that God would love to have fanned the flames. He just parented the exact same way that his parents did, and it turned out pretty much the same way that it worked for his parents. Last week, we covered passive parenting with Eli, where he was passive. I mean, we're all novices at this whole thing. There are no professional parents, and as a novice, sometimes the easiest thing to do is just do nothing. You know, the path of least resistance is sometimes the, the, the way that we choose. And he did that, did not discipline his children, and they and he reaped the effects of that. And maybe you can identify with one or two of those, maybe in your own parenting or maybe in the way that you were parented. Now, today we get to one that's easy for all of us to identify, and that is the do as I say, not as I do kind of parenting, because we could all see it in our parents, couldn't we? We could all see it in our parents. Sometimes it happens like this in my house, I have teenagers. And sometimes I'll say, hey, you know, will you take the trash out? So they go over, they grab the trash, and on the way out carrying the trash bag, they say something like, uh, Dad, how come you're not taking the trash out? Insinuating like, this is a do as I say, not as I do, and I just wait for it. I just, I just wait for that to come. I mean, this, ha this happens like 50 times in our house. I just wait for it. I'm just waiting for it. And my answer to that always is, who was it that took the trash out when you were in your diapers, had 20 bombs a day? Who took the trash out then? Who took the trash out when you were in your high chair throwing chicken nuggets all over the house? Who took the trash out then? Who took the trash out when you're carrying your little Blue's Clues lunchbox to school? Who took the trash out then? And then, and then at the end of that, they're like, well, what about today? <laughs> And it's normal. That's normal for, for teenagers to be asking that because they're starting to realize that everyone has a role to play in the family. 
And, and the family life cycle, as it begins to move, everyone begins to play a different role in the family because I'm going to get them back. When they have to change my diapers 20 times a day, I'm going to get them back. The roles begin to change as time goes on. Now, those are pretty simple little things, but there are times when kids notice giant holes in their parents' message. When parents say to do things like excel in all that you do or respect authority or get good grades, and you as a kid would have loved to have said to your parents, but you don't do any of those things. You're lazy at what you do. You always are talking bad about your boss, and you got bad grades in school. Now, you didn't dare say it, but you saw it. Or when your parents would tell you not to do things, don't, don't drink alcohol, don't, don't speed in your car, don't date someone who's not a Christian. And you would have loved to have said, but you've done all of those things. You drink, you speed, you not only dated somebody who wasn't a Christian, you married them, but you wouldn't dare say it. But it's often that parents' actions speak louder than their words. And it is the actions that are the teacher, it's not the words that are the teacher. And that's what we're going to get to today. And it isn't often until years later that parents realize the effect of living a bad example, but saying a good example. Today we're going to see the effects of that in our, uh, our character for today, which is King David. King David and his son Absalom. That's where we're going to go today, but I want to show you the very last verse that we're going to read today before we start at the beginning. Here's the last verse. Here's where it all ends. This is David mourning the death of his son. He says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. I told you that the Bible contains cautionary tales. And this is another one of them. Don't do what David did. Now, hopefully by now you've found 2 Samuel chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. David has seven wives and children from those seven wives. One of his wives uh, was the daughter of a pagan Bedouin king, and he had two children from that wife. They were beautiful, very attractive children. Absalom and Tamar were the two children from this uh, one of his seven wives. Now, his oldest son, the, the heir apparent, was not Absalom, and it was not his daughter Tamar, obviously. His oldest son, the heir apparent, the crown prince, his name was Ammon. Now, as the families would go in the culture, the dad wouldn't live necessarily in the family. All of the wives and their families had individual compounds that they stayed in, and the dad didn't really live with any of them, particularly being the king. And so we have Ammon, who was the stepbrother of Absalom and Tamar, but they didn't really spend a lot of time together because they live in different compounds. But but Ammon, the crown prince, he saw enough. He saw enough to know that Tamar, she's beautiful. So we pick it up here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. Then Ammon said to Tamar, 
bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And so Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to the bedroom to her brother Ammon. When she brought them to him to eat, he told he, he took hold of her and said to her, Come and lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, really stepbrother, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he, that's Ammon, would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And so Ammon, the heir apparent, the crown prince, sexually attacks his stepsister. Now, of course, when David hears this, he's angry. Look at verse 21. Now, when King David heard all of these matters, he was very angry. Of course, of course, a parent would be angry. When, when your child is the victim of a crime, and that's exactly what occurred here. Tamar was not the sinner. Tamar was not the culprit. She was the victim. She was attacked here, and any parent would be angry when their child is attacked. And so he was. Not only, though, was David angry, so was her brother Absalom. It just, it got to his core. He hated that this occurred. Look at verse 24 of 2 Samuel 13. Absalom came to the king, and he said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Ammon, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be a burden to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. So Absalom, the brother of of Tamar, he says, okay, we have some sheep shearing, we need to go on a trip. Hey, dad, which is the king, why don't we all go? Everyone's going to go. All, this, all the sons, everyone's going. David says, no, it doesn't make any sense for all of us to go. That's a waste of time. But you go, go for it. Verse 26, then Absalom said, if not, meaning if you don't go, dad, King David, please let my brother Ammon go with us. And the king said to him, why should I let him go with you? But Absalom urged King David, and, and let Ammon and all the king's sons go with him. So Absalom takes all of David's sons, all of his stepbrothers, on this trip. And notice why Absalom wants to do this. Verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Ammon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Ammon and put him to death. Do not fear, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be vigilant. So the servants of Absalom did to Ammon just as Absalom commanded. Then all of the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. So Absalom, the brother of Tamar, goes and in a vengeful rage of hatred goes and kills his stepbrother Ammon, kills the heir apparent, kills the crown prince. Now, was this death justified? Uh, he was guilty of rape. And, and according to the Mosaic law, the capital punishment was the, was the discipline for that. But he didn't just fall victim to the law. He was a casualty. Ammon was a casualty of his own father's sin. 
Ammon was a casualty of his own dad's sin. We're going to go all the way back. I have it here on the screen to Exodus chapter 34. This is when the law of Moses was given. And this was an aspect or a stipulation of that law. He, this is referring to God, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And so, as an aspect of the law, not only was dad going to pay the price, so the family was going to pay the price. And David had many proclivities that his sons paid for. He had many wives, he had adultery, and he committed murder. Move back in your Bible just to a few chapters before what we are reading now. Skip back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. David modeled for his sons exactly what occurred. Now, of course, he didn't tell his son Ammon, hey, why don't you go have an adulterous affair? He didn't recommend it, but he modeled it for his son. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, well-known part of this part of the Bible. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, remember that name, we're going to follow that name in our story today, sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. He sent his military man, that's Joab, and all the military out to fight. He stayed at home, verse 2. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, remember, he's already married to seven women. But she came to him and he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house. The woman, that's Bathsheba, conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, you can see that David modeled for his son Ammon exactly how this adulterous affair proposition works, how to do it. Now, David never told him to go do it, but his actions spoke louder than words. But it wasn't only Ammon that was a casualty of David's sin. It was also his other son as well. Let's look in... 2 Samuel 11, verse 13, he models not only for his son Ammon how to have an adulterous affair, he models for his son Absalom how to kill someone. This is what David does to the innocent husband of Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11, verse 13, now David called him, that's Uriah, that's the innocent husband of Bathsheba that he had an adulterous affair with, now she is pregnant. He ain't to drink before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went to lie in his bed with the Lord's servants, but he, that's Uriah, didn't go down to his house. Now, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Remember Joab? Joab is the the leader of the military. He wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah is taking this note to Joab, and here's what the letter says in verse 15. Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. 
King David murders this innocent husband as a result of an adulterous affair that got her pregnant. And so now Absalom is also a casualty of his dad's example. He is now right in the middle of it. Now, his dad never said to Absalom, go kill your brother. But David's words didn't mean much. His actions spoke very loudly. Now, as an aspect of Exodus 34, there's a judgment that's going to come upon David. And so that judgment occurs uh, in chapter 12, verse 10. This is God speaking, and this is the judgment, the promise that God makes as an aspect of the adulterous affair and of the murder that he commits, verse 10. It says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife Uriah to be Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So the first promise is that death and murder, the sword, is going to be a part of your family. And we're going to find that that's going to be the case. And not only that, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. That's going to occur. And I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Not only is there going to be death and murder in your family, there's going to be someone within your own family that's going to come and attack you, and your wives are going to be sexually attacked. All is a judgment upon David and his family because of what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so his family are all now casualties of his sin. Actions speak louder than words. Well, David hears about the death of his son, Ammon. That's in chapter 13, moving your Bibles to the right a little bit, chapter 13, verse 36. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And also the king and all of his servants wept bitterly. They were, they were grieving the loss of the crown prince. They're grieving the loss of the heir apparent. They're grieving the loss of David's son. But David is grieving the loss of his boy. Now, Absalom, remember that's the other son, the stepbrother that killed him, the brother of Tamar, Absalom fled. Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> he, in a vengeful rage, now realizes the, the, what he has committed. At the end of verse 37, it says, and David mourned for his son every day. Just like a parent would, that's the wrong order. Kids aren't supposed to die before their parents. That's the wrong order. And so David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. David grieves three years at the loss of his son. Verse 39, the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Ammon since he was dead. After three years of grief, David is now comforted. He was just comforted by time. You know, time had just gone on, 
and he had been comforted. And now, though, he's grieving another loss. He's grieving the distance that has grown between him and his son Absalom. There's an emotional or relationship distance because of everything that has occurred. They haven't seen each other for three years. And David is now realizing the impact that his actions had had upon his sons. One of them is dead because of his example. The other one has fled because of what he had modeled for them. And it's unfortunate, but children do pay an enormous price for their sins of their parents. They do. Statistics say that children that come from divorced homes have a much higher chance of being divorced. Whenever that occurs in someone that we know um, here around Grace, we always pray for the children. Pastor Chuck and Pastor John and I, we pray for the children, that God would protect those children from from replaying the, the example of their parents. Whenever children are in a family where their parents are addicted to alcohol, the chances of them being alcoholics themselves skyrocket. It's amazing what the model of a parent does for a child. The parent can say, don't drink all they want. But the model is what the kids see. When the children are in a promiscuous home, either the, the dad or the, the mom is um, having adultery somewhere, the kids see it, and it's modeled for them, and often they follow suit to that. The kids do pay a price for the sins of their parents. Now, if all of this that we've read so far isn't bad enough, this isn't the end. Moving your Bibles to chapter 14, verse 25. Remember Absalom. He's been gone for three years, but he's very handsome. Remember, I told you that he was an attractive man. So attractive, in fact, verse 25 of chapter 14, it says, Now in all Israel, no one was as handsome as Absalom. Now, you thought it was your pastor, but it wasn't. It's Absalom. So highly praised, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut his hair of his head, and it was at the end of the year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it, he weighed the hair on his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. This dude weighs his hair, and people cared about it. That just tells you the kind of uh, awe that people had of him, that this is like this Disney prince cutting off his hair, and everybody ooing and aahing about how much hair that he has. And he is building a rapport with the people. And he is building a divide between him and his dad. Skip down to chapter 15, verse 2. After weighing his hair, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. He would go to the king's gate, his dad, the, the, the gate of the, 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 the king, and people would come there for justice. They would come there to, to have a judgment rendered against somebody else, if they have a claim against somebody else. And someone from the king's court would hear it, they would be the judge, and they would render a judgment. But he would catch them before anybody comes out to deal with the situation. And he says, wouldn't it be so great if somebody 
was a judge around here? I mean, you have a great case. Wouldn't it be great if someone was on your side? He's beginning to build more and more of a rapport with the people and creating a divide between him and his dad. Verse 4, moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would, oh, that one would appoint me a judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all the people of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He begins to undermine the rule of his dad, David, because of the position and the beauty that he has. He is undermining who David is. He sets himself up as a judge, and he begins to candidate to be the king. He's like a politician uh, sharing all the promises that he would make, all, promising all the things that he would do if he becomes the king. Four years later, he does become king. He usurps his dad's authority, and Absalom starts to come for his own dad. Skip down to 15, verse 13. Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with you, Absalom. And David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Absalom is now coming for the head of his dad, and his dad is running for his life. He flees for his life from his own son. Remember that promise that God had made about someone from your old house is going to come after you? promise fulfilled. Not only that, he does come. He comes to the house. He, left, he leaves behind his wives and his concubines to run the house. And Absalom does sleep with them, further fulfilling the promise that God had made. And so now all of the, the things that had been promised is now upon his family. Now, David and his men run and Absalom has usurped the, the, the authority, has usurped the, the crown. He's on the throne. But David's men fight back, go down to 18, chapter 18, verse 6. This is the counterattack. You have Absalom, who is leading Israel now, David with his uh, men, launching a counterattack. Verse 6 of chapter 18. Then the people went out to the field against Israel. That's David's people went out into the field against Absalom and the rest of Israel that he was leading. And a battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle was spread over the whole countryside, and get this, this is interesting terminology, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now Absalom, remember Absalom, this is, this is the, the son that had usurped the authority. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and then it's going to tell us how he just happened to meet them. It says, for Absalom was riding on his mule, 
and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and so he was hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. Now, you can already imagine this in your mind, can't you? You can just imagine how this is. This is a battlefield out in the countryside, and Absalom the king is kind of coming up behind all of his men, and he's on, he's on his mule, and somehow he gets caught up in this oak tree, and his head gets stuck between the, the branches of the tree. And so as he's trying to free himself, the mule just keeps going. And so now he is hanging between heaven and earth. His feet aren't touching the ground. (laughs) Sky is still above him. And he's just hanging there in the branches of the tree. Remember, this is how he meets David's men. Let's look at verse 10. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab. Remember Joab? Joab is the leader of the military. He's the leader of the the military of David's army. And and the person who saw it goes and reports to Joab, Behold, I saw Aslam hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who had told him, Behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him right there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. I'm not touching him. <laughs> he was, Absalom was so highly revered. He, this, this guy wasn't touching him at all. Skip down to verse 14. Then Joab said, I will not waste my time with you. And so he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who had carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. So now we have another untimely death, another brutal attack on another one of David's sons. And skip down to verse 30 of chapter 18. This is David's reaction to all of this. Verse 33 of chapter 18. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. He's grieving the death of his son, and he grieves greatly. But why? That's an interesting question. Why was David grieving so greatly after his son Absalom dies? Because you remember, remember Bathsheba and I'm pregnant? Well, they have a son. And they had a son, and the son was an infant, and as, as a young child, the son got terribly ill, very sick. And David, he grieved, he cried out to the Lord, he wept bitterly, he prayed severely, he fasted for his son's health. He wanted his son to be healed by God, and he was crying out to God, please heal him. And finally, that son died. And as soon as the son died, David stopped grieving. 
he stopped weeping, he stopped fasting, and someone asked him, why? Why did you stop weeping, and why did you stop fasting after he died? And this was David's response. He says, I shall go to him, but he cannot come to me. He knew that this infant son of his was under God's grace, and he was going to see that son again. I will go to him, but he won't come to me. He's dead, but his soul is in heaven, and I will go to him. I will see him again, but he won't come back to me here in, uh, on earth now. And so that's why he stopped grieving. His son was in heaven. His son was alive in heaven, and he was going to see him again. That's why he stopped grieving as soon as he died. Now we get back to Absalom. But Absalom dies, and he's grieving. So why is he grieving? Because David realized that he had not only failed his son like as a father, but he had failed his son in bringing him to belief in God. David knew that he was not going to see Absalom ever again. It was, yes, an untimely death, yes, a brutal death, but it was also an eternal death. Absalom was not a godly person, as you can tell. And he would spend eternity in hell as a result of his own sin. And David is grieving over the fact that he will never see his son again. Now, in earlier years, God had called him a man after God's own heart. And I think David wishes that his sons had followed that guy. <laughs> Whoever that guy was, he wishes his son followed that, the man after God's own heart. And yet, it was the actions of the dad that spoke louder than the words. It was the modeling of the dad that spoke louder to his sons in what to do than the words. And so he ends the saga with, oh, my son Absalom, my son, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son. Now, what father wouldn't die for their kids? I think any father would die for their kids. But I don't think David had to. What if he just lived for them? What if David had lived for them? How hard is it to live? I mean, if you die for them, <laughs> how about live for them and so that you wouldn't have to die for them? I think there are two things that David completely missed and we could easily apply as parents that we could apply here, as people who are married that we could apply to David's life. There are two things that David didn't do that could help us live for our children and so that then we wouldn't have to die for them. The first thing that, that we could do is to personally, when I say personally, I mean me, glorify Jesus Christ. That my life would be focused upon Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's what Psalm 128 says, it says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The number one thing to bring harmony to a home is nothing else than 
putting your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then living as a disciple of his. Now, Jesus said something really interesting. It was a a statement about the family, and I haven't brought it up this entire time because it's a hard one, but here it is. Luke 14. This is what Jesus says. He says, if anyone comes to me and yet does not hate his own father and hate his own mother and hate his own wife and hate his own children and his own brothers and his own sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Is he saying that we shouldn't love our family? Is he saying that we we shouldn't love our mom and dad? We shouldn't love our kids? That's not what he's saying at all. I mean, he's the one who organized the family. (laughs) So that's not what he's saying. But what is he saying? He is giving the secret to having a loving home. The secret to having a lovely, loving home is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Personally, glorifying Jesus in our own lives. First, before before anything else, personally glorifying Jesus Christ. Now, that's not how it works in our culture usually, though. If you're to get advice, or if the the way that it typically works is the way that we want to bring a, a loving home, bring harmony to our home, is we want to obsess about the needs of the people in our home. We want to obsess about the needs of our parents, or we want to obsess about the needs of our spouse, or we want to obsess about the needs of our kids and their education and the needs for, for athletic, and we, accept, uh, we, we obsess about uh, taking care of our spouse and, and being affectionate and being appreciative and, and um, lifting up their self-esteem, and we obsess about, and those things aren't bad, but those aren't the things that bring a loving home first. The very first thing that Jesus says brings a loving home is not obsessing about what your dad needs and your mother needs and your wife needs and your children needs and your brother. It's not about obsessing about those things. It's about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Personally, glorifying Jesus Christ. And of course, that would start with putting your faith, your trust, receiving the gift of Jesus Christ and his eternal life Becoming a Christian, that would be the very first way to glorify Jesus Christ, to glorify him in your life. The Bible says that all of us are like Absalom. We're all like Absalom. All of us are like, now probably you haven't committed murder like yesterday, I hope. Don't raise your hands. However, it does say in the New Testament that if you have hatred towards someone in your heart, you've committed murder against them in your own heart. So maybe we can identify with Absalom a little bit more than we thought we could. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not just an untimely, brutal, physical death like Absalom, but also like Absalom, an eternal death. Absalom will spend eternity in hell. The wages of sin is death. All of us are like Absalom. But that's not the way the verse ends. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Yeah, Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. God sent Jesus Christ, the second person of the the Trinity. 
He lived a perfect life, and when He died on the cross, He was paying for sins. Pastor John wrote about how in that while we are yet sinners, Jesus Christ has died for us. That was a gift that was given to us. We didn't do anything for it. We didn't earn it. We didn't put Him up there. We didn't even think we needed a Savior, and yet Jesus has died for us. And so any person that receives Jesus Christ, that puts their faith and trust in, in, in the death of Jesus Christ, believes that Jesus' death is... Um, is brings salvation, what occurs is it brings salvation. That, that the death is applied in my life. It's a gift that I get. And Jesus' righteousness is a gift that is then like wrapped around me. I'm not righteous, but Jesus is. And so the righteousness of Christ is imputed, is, is, is now wrapped all around me. It's not me, it's Jesus. And that is such a wonderful gift. And that is where glorifying Jesus Christ with our lives begin. That's where discipleship with Jesus Christ begins, putting your faith and trust in Jesus. But that's not where it ends. Then it's glorifying Jesus Christ in all that we do. As, as a parent, we want to glorify Jesus in all the, the, all the activities we do as a family. We want to glorify Jesus. We want to find a, a place of worship where we come and worship together as a family. We want to find a, a body of Christians that we can serve with as an aspect of glorifying Jesus Christ. And so the very first thing that a parent can do for their kids in their parenting has nothing to do with the kids. It has everything to do with our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you glorifying Jesus Christ in your life? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? Many of you would say yes. Could Jesus identify you as a disciple of his the other six days of the week? Personally glorify Jesus Christ. I think that's one thing, obviously, that David missed. <laughs> he, he did not lead his kids in that way. I think he wished he would have in retrospect. The second thing that a parent can do to bring a loving relationship to their family and something that David completely missed is we love our spouse. We love our spouse. Notice the singular word. We love our spouse. This is what the Bible says about loving our spouses and how great our spouses are. In Psalm 128.3, it says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. In Ecclesiastes 9, this is one that I read when I get to officiate a, 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 a wedding. This is one I, I read in officiating. It says this, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which God has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life. What is this? What is the reward? What is the reward for going to work and dealing with the boss and dealing with the stupid customers, dealing with the stress of the requirements, dealing with the heat and working outside or the, or the pressures of, of sales requirements? What is the reward? It's, it's not the retirement plan. You're not doing it for the 401k. It's not all the benefits that you get from the county. It's not the paycheck. This is your reward in life. What is this? Your wife. The reason that you work hard all day and put up all with all that stress is because there's a reward when you're getting home. And that reward is your wife. Do you see your wife as your reward? Not only that, 
But also the reverse is true too. In Titus 2, it says this, it says, older women likewise are to encourage the young women to love their husbands. And so not only are the husbands to be looking forward to the reward at home, the older women in the church are to be loving their husbands and then teaching the younger women how to love their husbands too. And so that when you have the husband coming home looking for his reward, there's a wonderful reward that is waiting when he gets home. It is this husband-wife relationship that is the focus. The, the culmination of six days of creating everything on planet Earth. I mean, think of all the potential conclusions, the, the, the epic conclusions to six days of creating everything. I mean, he could have marched aliens around. I mean, he could have done, God could have done anything. But what was the culmination of six days of creation? Genesis 2 tells us what it was. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The marriage is the culmination of all of the creation that, that was ever created. And I want you to notice an important thing in all the verses that I've shown you. Something has been excluded from all of those verses. Kids are not there. Kids aren't there. When, when Adam was incomplete, God didn't make for him children. He made for him Eve. And a husband is not complete once he has children. A husband is complete when he has a wife. And a woman is not complete once she has children... The marriage relationship is the family. The family doesn't begin when you have kids. The family begins when you're wed. That's what the, All families begin with two. There are lots of two families. And so when you have kids, those are just additions to make the family even bigger. And so that's what I mean by love your spouse. Because our spouse is the most important relationship that we have. just want to show you a couple, have you think about this idea of how our spouse is placed in Scripture. So I want you to think through this with me. Okay, the first social relationship that was ever established, the first relationship between two people in society ever, is, was what? It's the husband wife relationship. That is the very first one. Any other relationship that you know of otherwise, like, like dad and son, uh, mother, daughter, uh, 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 brother, sister, child, parent, all of those relationships came after the wedding commitment. All of them did. Now, I know I get in our culture, today, you know, men will and women will just, you know, they, they won't get married, and they'll just, you know, live together, and then they'll have kids, but that creates a very unstable environment for the kids, because the kids need a mom and a dad. They need parents. They need a, a married couple together. The, the thing that keeps families together is this marriage commitment. The thing that keeps families together is not the relationship, 
The thing that keeps families together, marriages together, is not the sex. The thing that keeps the marriage together is not the emotions. The things that keep a marriage together is the commitment that was made to God on the wedding day. That's the focus. That is the very first relationship that comes from all family other relationships. And so think of this. The most important relationship in the family then is what relationship? Hint, it's not the parent to child. The most important relationship in the family is the husband-wife relationship. Now, I know I'm not saying you, you can't love your kids. No, no, you love your kids. But the most important one is your spouse. And so if you love your kids, you're going to love your spouse first before them. Even Southwest Airlines knows this. You get on Southwest Airlines, crammed in there. If you're lucky, you get the middle seat. And you're taxing down the taxiway to take off. And this is what you hear. For those traveling with small children, in the event of oxygen failure, first place the oxygen mask on your own face, and then place the oxygen mask on your child's face. Now, this is counterintuitive. Because... With our child sitting next to us, you know, they got the window seat because they want to look out the window. Now we're crammed in the middle. And what would come visceral, what would come natural is, as soon as there's a cabin depressurization and everybody's freaking out and the oxygen falls from the, the ceiling, our first instinct is going to be, and this is why the warning is, we're going to want to wrap that oxygen mask around our child first. That's what we're going to want to do. However, if some fumble happens by the parent and does not get that wrapped around their child fast enough, both of them are going to die. They'll both die. If they don't get that around first, they'll both die. The parent may even die anyway. And so that's why the warning is, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. If the, if the plane's going down, if the plane has no oxygen... Put the oxygen on you first, and then your, your child may faint if they're, you know, without oxygen for a little bit, but you put oxygen, the mask on them now too, and now both of you live. That one little move of not doing them first, doing you first, saves both of you. That's what Southwest Airlines knows. And the same is true in a family. When there is some sort of harmony lost in a family, when, when there is a, a, a break in one of the windows of the family and all the oxygen is sucked out of the family, the, the recommendation is not to go send that love to your kids first. Instead, it would be, this is, this is what you would hear in that crashing family, you would hear, for those with uh, families with children, in the event of love failure, first restore the love between the father and the mother before supplying love to the kids. Why? Why would it be like that? Because it's the first one and it's the most important one. And then therefore, all other family relationships depend on, now you know where this is going, depend on the husband-wife relationship. Every other relationship in the family depends upon that first one. 
That's the way the creation is ordered. That the, the things later in creation are dependent on what occurred earlier in the creation. That's how creation is ordered. Yes, God put fish in the sea, but there had to be a day before that that he created the sea. The fish are dependent on the sea. The, the, the fish are dependent on what occurred the day before. God, yeah, put birds in the sky, but he had to, on a day before that, they, those birds flying were dependent on there being like something in the sky that they could flap around in. And so they were dependent on what occurred earlier in creation. The same is true for a family, that the kids are dependent upon the relationship of their mom and dad. The kids are more secure when their mom and dad are loving to each other. And that is seen often, and there are lots of books written about kids who grow up in split homes or dysfunctional homes. And the curiosity always is, is when when the two of us are together, our kid is even more disobedient than when we're apart. And the parents use that as a way to say, maybe we should just stay apart more. The reason that kids are more disobedient when mom and dad are together is because that child so wants mom and dad to agree together on something. Even if that something is, our kid needs a spanking, a kid's willing to take, take it so that mom and dad are agreeing upon something. Every other relationship in the family depends upon the health of the husband-wife relationship. David didn't consider that at all. That wasn't even a thing. And these are two ways that we as Christians could learn from David, not do what he did, and we could glorify Jesus Christ in our lives so our kids have a model that they could look at. And when there is a suction of harmony out of the home, (laughs) the parents love each other first, and then the love then goes to the children. Now, I get that this this application is astoundingly different than what you would get like waiting in line for your kids at school. (laughs) If you ask the moms waiting in line to pick up your kids at school, this is not what you would get. What the moms would probably say to you on if you told them about difficulties in your family, they would probably recommend that you love your kids first, that your kids take the priority. That's often the recommendation. Your kids are the priority. And, of course, when someone says that, that's insinuating that their husband takes a back seat and the kids are riding shotgun. When, when someone says the kids take the priority, that's insinuating that she's going to defend her kids before she's going to even defend her husband. When, when we say our kids take the priority, the insinuation is, is that if there's ever a conflict between my husband and my kids, I'm going to take my kid's side every single time. But, but that's not the biblical recommendation. If there's a loss of harmony in the home, if there's a pre- depressurization in the family, am I glorifying Jesus Christ? That's the first thing. Am I glorifying Jesus Christ? Do I know that I'm saved? Do I know that I'm going to heaven? Is my life a model for the rest of my family? Am I living a life of discipleship with Jesus Christ? If not, Jesus says, forget all those other relationships. He says, focus on the one with Jesus first. And then, love your spouse. We love our spouse first. And then the pressurization can begin to build again in the family, starting with mom and dad. And then it can flow to the children. I think David probably missed those. And I think in retrospect, he wished he would have done those. 
And yet the modeling that he did sent his kids in a different direction. Now, maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't done that first part first. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to ask all of, you, all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute? It creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. And if you want to glorify Jesus Christ by putting your faith and trust in him for the very first time, you just talk to him. You, you, you don't talk to me. You talk to God in heaven in the comfort of your own heart. And so with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one else can see what you're doing. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk anywhere. You just talk to God in your own heart. You don't have to say it out loud. God can read your mind. But this is what you would say in prayer to God. You'd say, God, I know that I've sinned. I'm just like Absalom. I know that I deserve eternal punishment. And I know that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus has died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that he rose three days later proving that he is God. And I put my personal faith, my personal trust, my personal belief in Jesus Christ. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, many of you have already prayed that prayer. And you've told me that you already know that you're going to heaven. And so then this is a moment of reflection to, to just think for a minute. Would Jesus call me a disciple of his? And if not... Talk to him in prayer. Say, Jesus, I, I want to glorify you with my life. I want to live for you. Please allow your Holy Spirit to give me the, the strength and the courage to, to live for you. That's, a, that's God's will, by the way. He'll, he'll follow through on that. Well, God, we thank you. We thank you for all the promises that we have in Scripture. We thank you for the cautionary tales and the warnings that we we have received as well. God, I pray that you would protect us from those things. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to glorify you in our lives, uh, that our, our personal life and our personal faith in you would, would take the priority. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.